Welcome to The Voice of Oregon Workers, a monthly podcast from the Oregon AFL-CIO. I'm Oregon AFL-CIO President Tom Chamberlain. This is our last episode of 2018, and we have much to reflect on. I'm sitting down with Oregon AFL-CIO Chief of Staff, Graham Trainer to discuss the wins, challenges, and lessons learned from a pivotal year for the labor movement. Thank you for the support of our podcast. We look forward to bringing you more inspiring episodes in 2019 as our labor movement takes on another year of challenges and we continue to win for working people. Thanks again for listening and happy holidays. Hello, everyone. We're back, and my name is Graham Trainer. I'm proud to serve as the Chief of Staff of the Oregon AFL-CIO, and we're bringing you the December podcast of the Voice of Oregon's Workers. 2018 has been a, quite a year for working Americans, with some real highs that require celebration and some real challenges and road, bu- road bumps along the way that have really forced the American labor movement to change, adapt, improve. Despite those challenges, though, uh, that face workers and attacks coming from anti-union politicians and courts, 62% of Americans still approve of unions and would likely join one if given the chance, which is a 15-year high. Additionally, I think it's fair to say that 2018 has been a banner year for collective action across the country, and we're really excited to talk more about that today. And right here in Oregon, uh, that is no different. There's been a lot of exciting examples of collective action and wins for working people despite some of the national challenges. And we're really excited to be here with Oregon AFL-CIO President Tom Chamberlain to discuss some of those highlights and challenges from a worker's perspective uh, in the past year. Welcome, Tom. Hey, thanks. Thanks uh, for having me on the show. I've really been looking forward to it. Uh, 2018 was a very interesting year. As you said, we've seen uh, union members. We started 2018 with union membership up. Uh, the first time in decades that's occurred. We had a, a net growth in our movement. Uh, we were attacked uh, by the United States Supreme Court through uh, the Janus case, Janus versus AFSCME. And I know we'll be talking later in the program about how the Oregon labor movement and the labor movement across the country prepared for that, that attack. Uh, and we've had significant organizing wins, not to mention an election um, that to me was just unprecedented. The, the gains that we saw across the country as we took back the House of Representatives, it really shows us that while we have an economy that favors the very few, the very rich, and the working people are struggling, they haven't lost their spirit to fight back. And if 2018 did anything, um, it, it showed us that our people are willing, willing to stand up, they're willing to push back, and they're looking for leadership that promises them a brighter future, not leadership that relies on success through fear. Great. Yeah, and that, I think that's a great uh, segue into this conversation that, um, you know, we'll sort of focus on a lot of the Oregon examples of these uh, wins and successes. Uh, we'll also talk a little bit about some of the national trends that we've seen. But I thought we might just take a, a walk down the 2018 um uh, calendar a bit. And, you know, when I think back about the year, um, you know, in my mind, it doesn't just start with the January special election, but that's a big part of the story about 2018, where we here in Oregon had 
healthcare on the ballot with Measure 101. And, you know, I think uh, this was a priority for the entire Oregon union movement. But, Tom, what did this fight about healthcare mean for workers? What was it about and why was it such a priority for the, for the movement? What it meant is, first of all, we have to understand that this, this fight's about expanded Medicaid. It's about getting more health care to more folks, and half of those folks are kids, over uh, 1.5 million in the state of Oregon. Uh, and when folks don't have health care, um, that cost is passed on to us. So the fight of health care, number one, is to make, as, make sure we could we could insure as many people as possible. And number two, to keep the cost of health care down for all of us. That's what that fight was about. What was really important here is that the Oregon legislature, under the leadership of Kate Brown, uh, figured out a way to expand funding for expanded Medicaid. Understand under the Obama plan, the health plan, uh, that the amount of money that we receive each year from the federal government for expanded Medicaid shrinks, and we have to fill that hole. Uh, they came up with a what they call a provider tax, uh, a tax on hospitals and health care providers to help fund this program. This was a an attack um, from the right that uh, Oregon voters, uh, almost two to one, said we don't want any part of that. Uh, we're a state that cares about our people, and we're going to make sure that we're going to keep these benefits for the poor and for kids. Great. And in light of just recent national news about the Affordable Care Act being yet again attacked, um, you know, this seems pretty notable for the country, too. So what do you, what do you make of this success, the two-to-one margin that Oregon voters defended health care here, and what it means for the national conversation about health care? What it, what it really shows us is poll after poll, the top priority for folks is health care. They want to see people insured. And there are folks who want uh, Medicare for all. There's folks who want a public option. But any proposal that you're looking at today includes expanding health care, not shrinking it. The uh, court decision on Obama, would act, the Obamacare, would actually shrink health care. It would keep, kick people off the health rolls. It would drive up the cost for all of us. What I see is that some leaders in Congress are not in sync with the American public, and that's where they should be. Uh, to be honest with you, the drug companies, the healthcare companies have an inordinate uh, war chest. Um, they're very involved in elections, and I think what we're seeing reflective coming in Washington, D.C., is, is the result of those big dollars going into the political system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. And one of the things I like to think about, too, is the fact that at the same time, this craziness, this this attempts to take people off of health care, take, take health care away from American people, is happening at the national level in Oregon. We're doing what you just said we're doing, which is right. expanding health care under the leadership of Governor Brown and the legislative leaders. You know what you don't see? Um, Every industrial country in the world has uh, universal coverage or uh, single payer. Uh, You don't see any of those folks scaling back their health care. And here we are, supposedly the richest country on earth, scaling back health benefits to our people. It's just not right. And I'm proud to be in Oregon because we've defended it. That's right. right. Um, so there was also just thinking back about the calendar. So that was in January, late January. There was a special election about health care. Measure 101, as we just mentioned, that was soundly defeated, that effort to take 
health care away from Oregon people. Um, there were also a number of special elections around the country that were happening kind of early in the year. You want to talk a little bit about some of those elections and why it mattered to working people? Yeah, and I, I think what I would like to do is sort of focus on Connor Lamb in Pennsylvania uh, because I think he, he's really reflective of what happened during those special elections. Uh, Connor Lamb was a United States Marine. Um, he was running in a red district. He did not run away from unions. He actually embraced unions and a, a very progressive uh, platform in expanded health care, Medicare for all, uh, good, good paying jobs. So a very populist message that really played to the, the voters in what had been Trump country in Pennsylvania. And it worked. And we saw that play out across the country, not only in the early special elections in the first part of the year, but again in November during the general election where the Repub the Democrats picked up 40, perhaps 41 seats because we don't know what's going to happen in North Carolina. But the progressive message, people want to hear that because the economy isn't working the way it should for them. You know, today, workers on average work 280 hours more than they did in 1979 and for less money. We're working harder and getting less for it. Less folks have employer-based health care. And at the same time, we're seeing the top 5 to 1% really make out in this economy. We see unbelievable profits and that our economy needs to work for all of us, not just a privileged few. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And, it's, and it speaks to, you know, again, back to your initial point, which was why so many American voters, Oregon voters, really embraced those candidates who were willing to take bold positions on economic issues, right? So, right. Um, so kind of moving down the calendar year, uh, so in May there were uh, primaries here in Oregon. There were primaries, of, of course, throughout a number of months uh, across the country, but let's just focus on the Oregon primaries. Um, any, any takeaways from a worker's perspective on the primaries right here in, in Oregon in May? I think what you're seeing is workers really voting their pocketbooks. Um, you see, unprecedented the amount, the number of folks who are turning out for these elections. You saw Val Hoyle run for the labor commissioner on a meat and potatoes uh, platform of worker rights and benefits, prevailing wage, and she prevailed quite easily in that election. You shot, saw Shamia Fagan uh, take on longtime incumbent Rod Monroe. Uh, Rod historically had been a very solid vote for organized labor, but got crossways over tenant protections. And more and more, you're seeing labor unions really uh, uh, broadening, um, broadening uh, the definition of workers' issues. And workers' issues is how much they pay for housing. And if you are against tenant protection, you are not taking uh, organized labor's position. And um, I think Shamia's um, big success in that race shows that when you, again, when you speak to workers, when you talk about their issues, you will prevail. Exactly, and you know, I think um, I've, uh, you know, I think we've all probably had even legislators 
wonder why we sort of weigh in on issues like housing or tenant protections. And as you just said, you know, that is a pocketbook issue That's if right. there ever is one. That's right. And so I think, um, you know, the fact that that was an issue in that election, um, hopefully the 2019 legislature tackles tenant protections in a meaningful way and we're able to, um, you know, really balance the playing field between tenants and landlords um, as one strategy for getting workers more affordable housing. That's right. And, and you know, either the when you're looking at that polling, like I, I spoke to earlier about health care, it's either two or three, depending on the poll, is housing. We can't walk down the street and not see homeless people. We, you know, you go downtown and people are on the sidewalks, not just panhandling, but living on the sidewalks. Data shows that 40% of those folks have a full-time job, have a full-time job. There is just not housing for them. The rule of thumb is that you pay 25% of your income on housing. That is out of whack in major cities, specifically here on the West Coast. So the focus on housing is more important than ever when we see more families on the street, we see more families in beat-up RVs or in boats on the Willamette River. They're going to find any place they can to find shelter for themselves and their kids. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And like that stat you just mentioned about 40% of uh, of, of uh, folks that um, are experiencing houselessness or struggling with their housing situation have a full-time job. Another stat that has been startling for me to learn is that four in ten Oregonians are also renters. Right. And so when we talk about housing policy, when we talk about affordable housing, we have to take into account that 40% of folks are renting from a landlord and we need to make sure the laws and the power balance or imbalance is uh, you know reflects the need that tenants have That's right. in that kind of market. Yeah. So, uh, again, kind of working our way down the uh, calendar timeline, um, I like to kind of think about the spring and the summer as uh, one of a lot of collective action across the country. There were a lot of exciting things happening. Um, You know, there were teacher walkouts. There were all kinds of things happening across the country. I don't know if you want to share a little bit about your perspective on what those walkouts and that collective action was all about. Sure. I think what we have seen since um, election, uh, Election Day of 2016 is an awakening of the United States, an awakening of our people as people flooded the streets in demonstrations, the Me Too movement, just activism about poor people's issue. Uh, I think that really showed out on the teacher strikes uh, from West Virginia to Arizona. Teachers standing up and saying, look, you haven't given us a pay raise for years, but more importantly, you're underfunding education. They weren't out there just for pocketbook issues, their pocketbooks. They were out there out on strike trying to get more money in the classrooms for their kids, getting more teachers in the system so you don't have 35 or 40 kids in a classroom. This was a great courage, and they met predominantly with great success because the public is behind them. When we found out what they were making in Arizona, it was criminal and shocking, and the Folks in Arizona got behind the teachers, and I think you're gonna you're seeing that happen more and more. And the labor movement is becoming more and more aggressive, and we need to be. Whether it's the last year's Lane County strike or Burgerville demonstration uh, coming up next Monday for Burgerville workers, that's what this is about. Taking to the streets, that's where our power is at right now. Yep. Exactly. And, you know, just right here in the Northwest, there were also lots of actions regarding teachers, teacher strikes, and in in Washington in particular, just across the river, um, there were, it felt like 
a wildfire of strikes and activity that were happening all simultaneously. Um, and, you know, I think that naturally has an impact on how Oregon teachers are feeling and mobilizing. But I don't know if you want to share thoughts about what that Washington strike activity and period means for Oregon. Yeah, well, let's remind the folks listening what happened in Washington State. The Washington legislature put more money in the education budget focused, targeted for teachers to give them wage increases. And we had a number of school districts uh, throughout Washington that was going to keep that money and not give it to the teachers. Rightfully so, the teachers stood up and they, they continued to stand up until they got what was promised to them. Uh, that's what it takes. People don't give working people um, wage increases or protect their benefits just out of the goodness of their heart. And I think what Washington State's teachers taught us once again is you have to stand up to get what is rightfully yours. I believe that's going to have an impact in Oregon where we see uh, teacher salaries frozen or not meeting the cost of living for decades. Uh, you're seeing seeing public employees uh, getting tired of being scapegoated for financial problems in the state of Oregon and trying to protect their retirement benefits, even though the Oregonian, the business community is trying to scapegoat them and use them as an out and not to pay their fair share. But that's what the labor movement's about. It's about standing up and pushing back. Exactly. And uh, just uh, right in the middle of summer, we also, and we kind of, uh, Tom opened with this, but, um, you know, Janus is on, the Janus versus AFSCME case, Supreme Court case, is obviously on everyone's mind um, as a, a major challenge facing the labor movement. It was uh, dubbed by many in the mainstream media as a death blow to the organized labor movement. Uh, which is, of course, the furthest from the truth. But um, I don't know if you've got any thoughts about kind of what Janus, in the middle of all of this exciting uh, mobilization, these uh, this collective action, the victories coming out of the primary and those special elections, um, dealing with Janus right in the middle of the summer in June. Um, what was that like, and what are your thoughts about what it means for the movement? Well, first of all, the Freedom Foundation and the Right to Work uh, group, they portrayed Janus as, which was elimination of fees for non-union members. In other words, you get all the benefits of the collective bargaining, of uh, workers' comp, all the protections you get through a union, um, these free riders still get, but they don't have to pay for it. And that's what Janus was about. It eliminated those fees. Um, now, the Freedom Foundation will say that they just don't think it's fair that folks should be forced to pay union dues. But if that's the case, they wouldn't be in the streets uh, daily trying to discourage fo or encourage folks to drop their membership or the email blasts that they're trying to, again, get folks to drop their membership. This is a front group for the Koch brothers, and it is designed for one thing, and that is to weaken unions. What happened in Oregon and in the country is different than what happened in Wisconsin, was that, eight nine years ago, when they um, dropped, they became right to work. They weren't prepared for that. We were. We have been preparing for this for over two years. Um, Graham, you, you headed up the internal organizing program that we had here at the Oregon State Federation. We brought in public and private sector uh, unions and leaders to develop a program to, to educate our membership, to reconnect with our membership. Uh, and it really paid off. You know, um, the, the uh, Ruther brothers ran the UAW for years, for years, decades. And there was a big fight with UAW 
uh, back in the late 40s, and it was over pay, payroll deduction for union dues. One of the brothers, Walter, was president. He wanted, he wanted the payroll deduction because it freed up uh, resources and staff time, and it was easy. The other brother, who was the attorney, said, you know, if we lose that contact with our workers, our members, and that contact is every month we go and collect the dues and have a conversation with the workers about what's going on in their lives, about sports, about their families, maybe about politics, and always about the union. If we go to pay payroll deduction, we will lose that connection. The bright spot in Janus is that this internal organizing program that we developed that our, with our affiliates, it's made that reconnection. And I believe, by and large, this is why you're seeing more activity by rank-and-file members on the streets voting because of that connection with their union. That's, that's probably the most important thing, positive thing to come out of Janus. What we haven't seen in Janus is the wholesale loss of union membership. Yes, we've lost a few, but not on the scale we anticipated. In fact, one of our, pub, one of our public, uh, public employee unions actually has gained members through Janus. I'll never forget uh, one public employee union called me and he said, you know, the first call we got after the Janus decision was from a fee payer wanting to know if, uh, how they converted to full membership. And the second call was from somebody who wanted to pay more union dues. Uh, a lot of support for unions right now, not only within the movement, but among the general public. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, clearly the, the billionaires have a lot of resources. They've got their their uh, Supreme Court justices. They've got their politicians, but they don't have the people and the, the sophistication that many unions here in Oregon and across the country have to, to really strengthen their organizations despite these challenges. So right. it's really exciting. So uh, just at, towards the end of the year, we've already, uh, you know, once, uh, so that was uh, late June was the Janus case. Um, you know, once we get into the, the, you know, the makings of fall, uh, everything turns into the campaign season to make sure that pro-worker elected officials and issues are victorious on the election uh, during the election results but the November elections as you mentioned earlier Tom um, you know were obviously something to be really proud of for the labor movement um, but you know what do you think they what do you think those results mean for workers you sort of alluded to you know some of the signals that we get from all this collective action but yeah what is it what do you think that the election results really mean um, and uh, what it, what does it mean moving forward into 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 a legislative session here in Oregon or into a Congress and uh, at the national level it, it, there's so many layers to answer that question. Number one, uh, we had more activities from our affiliates involved in our program than we've ever had before. Number two, we had more volunteers than we ever had before. And that wasn't isolated just here in Oregon. It was across the country. I mean, we skipped over Missouri. Missouri, uh, the legislature implemented right to work, and I think the vote was three to one. Uh, to overturn the actions of the legislature and eliminate it right to work from Missouri. People are starting to take notice. People know they're not getting their fair share. And I truly believe that's why we had such great activity. Um, the line between um, a, a working person's governor, uh, of Kate Brown, on trying to get more people back to work, respecting workers' workers' rights, and understanding you can't balance budgets on the back of workers was pretty clear in this election compared to her opponent, Newt Bueller. And Kate won. Mm-hmm. 
and she won pretty big. We won uh, super majorities in both houses. Uh, and in those Republican districts, we saw a tightening um, between uh, progressive candidates and corporate candidates. Uh, this was an important election. We see that the uh, United States House of Representatives, where the, the Democrats picked up 40, 40, 40 seats, um, it's going to be a new day. They will be in control. Nancy Pelosi will be Speaker of House. Things that have been ignored in the past will not be ignored in the future. Um, for example, um, some of the things that President Trump has done and which the Republicans have not held him accountable for, he will be held accountable. You will see a, a number of pro-worker collective bargaining bills and organizing bills for the private sector come forward during this Congress in preparations for the 2020 election. Understand something. Corporate America is scared to death of the union movement right now. Yeah, we're smaller, um, we have, uh, we, but we still have a lot of clout. And the polling shows that 60, over 62% of the American public supports unions. And if you dig down in those numbers, the younger the worker is, the higher the, that percentage grows. More The communities of color, higher than 62%. People want a join a union. And what you're seeing in response from the from corporate America is very aggressive anti-union action. Where 10 years ago, uh, 75% of employers who were in an organizing drive held captive meetings. Today, it's 95%. Uh, they're getting, employers are bringing in um, uh, union busters sooner, paying them from twenty-five dollars to $50,000 if they get the union to withdraw their petition to organize. We're going to have to go to a different organizing model. Um, what we have in the United States right now is more like a corporate model where, especially in the private sector, Unite Here is a great example. They've been very successful uh, going after Hyatt, um, Marriott, uh, new projects. But if you're a 50-person restaurant and you want to organize, under our current model, you're going to have a tough time doing that. So we really have to look at that. And it's interesting, the AFL-CIO have what they call the Future Committee. And this very question is going to be addressed by that Future Committee, which is comprised of the, the 30 largest unions within the AFL-CIO, to talk about how do we address that? How do we, how do we make sure that workers are you know, defined uh, appropriately? That they're workers or are they independent contractors? And what's the test that they do for that? And we know that misclassification for independent contractors is rampant. Um, so uh, I'm actually uh, looking forward to see uh, the recommendations that come out of that committee, which has been meeting almost monthly uh, for the last year. Great. Well, related to all of those uh, worker organizing uh, challenges, uh, you know, I think um, it's also uh, really exciting to me to, to, despite those odds and those challenges, to see the to, to see the real growth and to see the numbers that really speak for themselves and the innovation that's happening in the Oregon union movement. Um, you mentioned that one public sector union in the state has actually increased membership, and uh, and there's lots of reasons for that. But um, you know, taking on innovative campaigns that are industry wide making sure that we're giving more workers a voice in creative ways. Um, I thought 
don't we dive in a little bit and talk about some of the uh, some of the just the national uh, organizing trends? Um, you know, I think you mentioned some of the challenges that workers face under the current labor law at the federal level and especially in the private sector. Uh, but, you know, what are some of those trends? What are some of the growth patterns? And then we can maybe dive into a little bit of the Oregon specific examples that we're all proud of. I think I think one of the uh, better examples is AFSCME, uh, behavioral health. A lot of that work uh, 20 years ago was done at the county. It was done at the state. And it began to be contracted out to nonprofit organizations. And what resulted from that is you had folks with master's degrees or doctor's degrees who worked with folks with behavioral health problems um, earning less than thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 a year. They couldn't hardly make a living. Uh, AFSCME has begun to organize those folks on a mass scale. Uh, Volunteers of, of America uh, was the one of the first targets that AFSCME organized this year, and they had they paid hell trying to get a contract um, until finally civil disobedience, where a number of leaders, including the executive director of AFSCME, uh, was arrested and brought attention to the issue. Can you imagine the? 50 or 70 workers at Volunteers of America when they saw leaders from the Oregon labor movement get arrested on their behalf. That's pretty cool. That's a very strong message. That's what the labor movement should be doing. We should be standing up for those low-wage workers. We always have, but more so in a more visible way. Mm-hmm. Um, AFT, higher ed, we saw grad students at Portland State and faculty at Oregon State organize bringing about 2,000 workers into the Oregon Union Movement. Oregon Federation of Nurses and Healthcare Professionals, um, they grew by about 25% last year, going after uh, uh, medical techs, uh, x-ray technicians, uh, things of that nature in our healthcare system in Oregon. And the machinists, being very strategic, went went after a shop within Precision Cast Parts Precision Cast Parked is one of the largest manufacturing um, groups in Oregon. The machinists had tried to organize them a couple of times, uh, uh, but they went after the welding shop and won, and finally received a favorable ruling from the National Labor Relations Board. UFCW brought in thousands of workers at Albertsons and Safeway. And then the TNC campaign at the city of Portland is a strategy to get power for those Uber and Lyft drivers so they can air grievances, address things like too many too many uh, drivers in the system, uh, what the rates are. So building power is a different way. That's great. Yeah. And those are all uh, really proud moments of just our uh, state here in Oregon. And there's lots of examples across the country as well. But um, just those, those, those are some really um, pretty impressive numbers that you just rattled off and a number of different unions from different sectors, organizing different types of workers, um, you know, to, to, you know, to really just think about what's going on here in Oregon. What does all that mean? You know, there were that you rattled off uh, stats from private sector workers in manufacturing, from healthcare workers in the private and the public sector, from uh, behavioral health workers and, and the like. What is it, what is all that what does all that organizing in so many different parts of our economy tell you about the future of the Oregon Union movement? Well, it means that the, the more workers, especially workers who are within a, a certain sector, will not only improve through collective bargaining the wages and benefits for those workers, but other workers who aren't impacted by that contract 
but whose employer has to be competitive to keep folks. That's how the labor movement works. It also, secondarily, it's power. The more, more members we have, the more people we get involved in the process, the more power we have to push back against a corporate agenda. Uh, you saw that in the 2018 election. You saw that at Volunteers of America. Uh, you saw that in city elections. I believe you're going to see more of that. And you'll, in 2020, I think we'll see an election in this country like we haven't seen in my lifetime. All, all exciting stuff. So we're about out of time, but I've got a couple popcorn-style questions I wanted to ask you, Tom, while we've got you. Uh, what makes you the most proud as you look back at 2018? We just rattled off a lot of stats, a lot of stuff that's happening both in Oregon and across the country. What makes you most proud? Wow, that's a tough question because there's a lot to be proud of in 2018. I think how, but what I'm proudest of is how the Oregon Union movement responded to the Janus decision and bringing in uh, affiliate leaders private and public understand and they all understood that we're all in this together and put their heads together and came up with a damn good program great um now uh you, we've talked we've kind of alluded to the changing economic picture for working people uh and all the different challenges this economy poses for working people but what what issue would you say has you the most concerned based on today's changing economy uh, two things one is the attack on health care benefits while you had a number of Republicans, and I'm not beating up on Republicans, I'm just holding them accountable for what they said in 2018, and that is that they were going to protect health care for Americans, specifically uh, folks under 26 years old that today can be shared, uh, insured under their parents' health care and pre-existing conditions. The, the, the judge, when he overturned Obamacare, and by the way, it's not overturned, this will be appealed, um, it attacks pre-existing conditions. It attacks those young folks who get their health care uh, uh, from their parents. The second thing I'm afraid of is corporate America. They've been going, they've really been smart about attacking unions, and Janice is one of them. I see that, that escalating. And success is how we push back. Success for the 2020 election is organized labor coming up with a package of legislation that increases workers' power, workers' protection on the job, and gives hope to every working person in this country. Exactly. And it sounds like, um, you know, that's probably maybe how you might answer part of this question. But, uh, you know, with 2018 wrapping up, this is our final podcast episode for the year. It's been a fun year with our first nine episodes in the bank now. Uh, but what are your thoughts about 2019, both in Oregon and nationally, uh, and what's in store for workers? Maybe just to add on to what you just mentioned. Well, we're very fortunate in Oregon that we have three-fifths majorities. But that doesn't mean that uh, Business Oregon won't come after the uh, public employees' retirement system. And scapegoating those public employees who've worked a career to have secure retirement, attacking those benefits or tearing those benefits so that new hires have a glorified savings account rather than a true retirement, I'm fearful of that. I'm fearful that uh, corporate America will intensify their efforts to uh, eliminate unions. And you're seeing that with the United Auto Workers and what uh, General Motors is doing. They're closing down plants in states that have strong collective bargaining laws and moving them to right-to-work states. If you followed the stories this weekend, they promised jobs to 2,900 UAW members, but they're in the South. They're not in states that have strong collective bargaining laws or a history 
or high density of union members. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, uh, it's been a pleasure to have you on, Tom. Uh, any final words you want to leave listeners with as, as we close out the year with our podcast? Yeah, I, I think 2019 is a year to be encouraged. It's a year to re-engage, and it's a year to challenge how we've always done things. How we always have done things hasn't been successful. And I think the internal organizing program, I think how we did this, the 2018 election using new technologies, uh, uh, new uh, new activity with coalition partners so that we, we got more people to the polls, are examples of the status quo doesn't fit and that we need to challenge those norms. Great. Well, uh, again, it's been a pleasure having you on. Uh, You've been listening to the Voice of Oregon's Workers, the Oregon AFL-CIO's podcast. If you like what you've heard, please share. Uh, Give us a like on Facebook and find us anywhere you find your podcasts, and we'll catch you next month in the new year. Thanks.